0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.
1: We see ourselves as sort of less capable and the world as more stressful, and then we internalize that story, and we repeatedly tell ourselves that story over and over, which means we can't get out of whatever trap we found ourselves
2: in. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn how to maximize your movement and prevent injuries. We'll discuss social media and your health. We'll find out about chiropody, podiatry, and orthotics. And lastly, we'll explore the impact of your self-narrative. But first, a little bit of business. Did you know that if you walk or run and are out of alignment you increase your chances of seriously injuring yourself we're all athletes healthy injured pro amateur veteran novice plantiga empowers you to perform better recover faster and build resilience through deeper understanding of how you move utilizing their sensor insoles they measure your movement in detail speed gait asymmetries and so much more then you work one-on-one with a dedicated movement coach that gives you personalized insights and programming to help you achieve your goals, whether that's running a race or fending off that looming injury. To reach your potential and keep you in the game for as long as possible, register for the Plantiga Movement Health Program at plantiga.com/beta. Quinn Sandler is the co-founder and CEO of Plantiga, a digital health platform powered by sensor insoles and AI-assisted movement coaching. Quinn and Plantiga are mission-driven to address the movement health crisis that is quietly growing into one of the largest burdens on society. Quinn is a serial entrepreneur who has been working in the health and wellness performance space for over 15 years Welcome to the show, sir. How are you? Thank you very much. I'm doing very well. How are you today? I'm excited. You know, when we spoke off air, I was telling you we really never covered anything like this on the show, and I think it's going to be super interesting for all our listeners. So I think we should sort of start at the beginning, which is, why is movement really so important to our health?
3: Well, that's kind of interesting. So movement is one of the keys to longevity. It's a fundamental pillar of health, along with things like nutrition, sleep recovery, It's just not really well understood. Even walking now is considered the sixth vital sign. But basically, the more we move, the longer we live. And that is very clear in the research. And then secondary to that is very much is our movement tied to our mental well-being. If you have mobility and then it gets taken away from you, it is crazy how that affects one's mental state. If I can't move the way that I used to, I get depressed. So... Movement in general is critical to our mental well-being and our physical well-being. And I think we're kind of taking some of the science from research and labs and kind of getting out to the general population. But, yeah, it's critical to being a functioning human.
2: Yeah, I think the philosophy of tonic is the fundamental interconnectedness of all aspects of your health. The diet, nutrition, begets fitness, which begets sleep, which begets, you know, mental health. And they're all, you know, connected to each other. So it's all relevant.
3: And we see that, you know, with the members in our program, that uh, it really is about actually often the mental well-being of somebody. That's why somebody wants to be able to move better or, you know, be able to go hiking again. It kind of comes down to living a happy and uh,
2: fulfilled life. If I'm not outside, if I'm not exercising, it absolutely 100% affects my mood.
3: And the pandemic showed that for me, too. You know, there were times where I might not have left the house for a few days and, you know, I hadn't gone for even a walk or a run. And it does affect you in your mental state. You, you kind of get the sense that you're not as, you know, snappy and outgoing, or at least for me, I definitely feel that connection. It's very tight.
2: All right. Let's focus in on the movement aspect. How do you and your group think about movement?
3: So what's interesting about us is we've taken a lot of the work that is well understood in the research And we look at movement and we break it down into what we call four pillars. So one, imagine you're walking, let's use that as a scene. We measure how you push off from the ground. So we measure the forces, we measure the forces when you land on the ground and you absorb and each of those looks at a different muscle complex. So it might be the foot ankle complex or the hamstring and knee complex. We then also measure the quality of that movement. I put that in brackets. Um, and kind of the variability and then we measure the performance so how far how fast you walked how high you uh, jumped so we kind of take all of those pillars of movement and in a way we build what we call a movement signature of how a human being moves and it is so unique like you move differently than i do I move differently than my wife. Every human, as unique as we are, the way that we move and our movement patterns are very unique to us. So we do a really good job of breaking that down and then using that as a way to analyze and drive insights and recommendations again to advance someone's well-being.
2: So the technology that we're talking about monitors and assesses the way that people move. Why is it important to do so?
3: So I mentioned it, I think on that first uh, question, but you know, walking is now kind of considered the sixth vital sign like it tells us so much about our well-being and our health as an example if you walk below one meter per second your morbidity skyrockets basically just means if you walk too slow you're going to die soon and we know that the research has demonstrated that there are tons of musculoskeletal issues that can be prevented, They can be delayed or treated with targeted screening, monitoring and exercise. But again, there's no tools that really allows us to assess it, to monitor and apply some of these research findings to everyday life. There's a big gap there. And that's kind of where we come in is, we really, really think that being able to use data and a wearable and get high quality data on how somebody moves allows us to either prevent injuries, you know, like a looming injury with your knee or build resilience so you can fend off an injury. But really it's critical to be able to measure this uh, movement signature, this health profile that you have in line with getting your eyes checked and we go and get blood work and we get, you know, food sensitivity testing, but really very few people actually measure the way that they move and or monitor it. And we know how valuable it is. So that's kind of where we feel we come in.
2: Okay. So there are lots of different things that can impact your ability to move? I mean, it could be as simple as getting older, but it could be as a result of an injury or an illness. So what are the types of chronic illnesses and issues that might impact a person's ability to move?
3: So I think on the illnesses part, you know, half of the North American population has some form of an MSK issue. So that's musculoskeletal. Something with their skeleton is off. You know, if you dive into that, about 40 to 50 million people suffer from arthritis in north america which is substantial and a lot of times there's no tools again to assess it to monitor to track you know arthritis is a progression of a disease the eventual outcome is getting a knee replacement or a hip replacement but it doesn't need to be like that so whether you're talking about the musculoskeletal or the arthritic or just the orthopedic injuries. So, you know, you hurt your ACL, so your knee joint, or you break your ankle, or you rupture your Achilles, you hurt your hip, even your lower back. All of these things, if we have better data and better coaching and better awareness, it really can optimize the experience that people might have with these chronic illnesses or other orthopedic injuries.
2: So I, I'm actually having a little bit of a hard time conceptualizing how the data can actually help recovery. Can you sort of walk us through how that actually 100%. works?
3: Yeah, so imagine I'm wearing, so our sensor insoles are very thin. It's like a little thin sensor insole that would go inside your shoe. It might go underneath your orthotic, but let's just say it's in your shoe and it's measuring in detail how your limbs move. So it's measuring how far they are, how how long your stride is. We also use a lot of AI to build predictions about how your limbs are moving. Do they look like it's an injured limb? Do they look like it's a healthy limb? One of the reasons why I would wanna do this is let's say that I'm recovering from an ACL, so I have a really bad knee injury. A lot of times, the standard of care is to use an eye test. So, you know, you'll go and your physical therapist will be like, you know, I feel like you're walking better. I think you're good to go, you know, back to playing basketball. That is absolutely insane to us. What we really need to be doing is saying, well, this person now is walking kind of like they used to walk before their injury. We have data, so we can basically better decide when to progress them in their rehab, or if they're regressing and we see that they're falling off, now we have data to be like, okay, what's happening? So really the data is kind of like a diagnostic, almost like a check engine light for your engine. And that data helps us tell you if you can progress what types of exercises that we might want to target, helps us identify weak muscle groups. It helps us assess whether you're ready to go back to kind of hiking or a high performance sport, but really, it's we're relying on the data to drive the decision making and use that to have very meaningful, well-informed conversations about somebody's treatment or rehab or performance goals. So it's really taking that kind of like you would, you know, your Apple Watch or your Fitbit, but that kind of on steroids to then drive some of the conversations that we're having with some of our members.
2: So I guess it isn't just that it's diagnostic; it's diagnostic in the moment, right? Because like as, long as you're wearing the insoles, I presume, you you, you you can monitor in the moment exactly what's going on as opposed to there being a time lag, which would assist in speeding up recovery, I, I guess. Is, is,
3: 100%. Yeah, 100%. And I, you know, I think that's a very key point is Let's say you wanted to get this data right now. You would have to go to a human performance lab or you go to a university and a technician would have to look at the data. But again, it's not collecting any data in the real world. Like it's not on your, you know, walk or your run or you're playing squash with your friends. We're not actually, whereas we come in and collect that data in the moment, in the actual event you're doing, which means that it is very insightful there's this thing called the Hawthorne effect basically just means that if people know they're being watched they change the way that they move so if i know yeah. that i'm getting a walk test done yeah i actually change the way i walk because i know someone is recording me so we kind of circumvent that by just it being passive it's in their shoes and we're just measuring how somebody moves and then through reporting and you know feedback and dialogue we really kind of dive down and The goal is to provide some meaningful
2: value there. A moment ago, you were talking about how you can track whether or not like whatever therapies somebody's undergoing, perhaps fix an ACL or something like that. And you can track the progression based on how you would normally walk. Do you have a database of the way people normally walk? Is that how you would do it? Or is it just you can just track the improvements from like time X, which might be like a few months after a surgery or something like that? Do you understand my question? 100%
3: and a really good question. So I think first and foremost, if we can get a healthy baseline, which we do with all of our members, not even a healthy baseline, a baseline of where somebody is, it is a very powerful tool to understand when someone is relatively healthy, how they walk, how they run, how they jump. So that's the first thing that we do when people join our our program is we kind of build this movement signature. Now that said, we have collected on about 3,500 adults. So that is general population from as old as 80 to 80. As young as 10. And we have a pretty good understanding of what population norms, not for every metric that we have because it's very nuanced, but really gait speed or asymmetries, which is kind of what side of your body you compensate and by how much. We have well-established norms that we have developed and that also exist in the literature. So it's twofold. We definitely rely on some of the population norms that we've developed that also exist in the literature. But then again, nothing beats being able to get you know, like you would get blood work, being able to get a walk test or a run test on file when someone ideally isn't injured. But even if we get them when they're injured, we then use that to see how far they've actually progressed from that injured state.
2: And I imagine as you get more people signing up, you're going to have a bigger base you know, constituency to compare to, right? It only, it only gets better from here because you have more people to compare to, correct?
3: 100%. And in fact, we even work with some researchers where they're asking if they can have access to some of our anonymized data because I actually don't know how many groups in the world actually have a data set the way that we do around different injuries, different diseases. We've collected a lot on arthritis, a lot on ACLs, lots of hip joints, lots of back issues. So we're building what we think is probably one of the most unique data sets around this type of movement data and how it's connected to the actual outputs, like what's your ground contact time, and your asymmetries or things like that.
2: Okay. Historically, like, what are the barriers to the average Joe getting this type of information? Like, I, like I would imagine, number one is the expense, but but maybe you can sort of delineate what are some of the issues preventing people from getting this information?
3: Yeah. Well, historically, very few people have had access to that. It, it. It's really been in kind of high performance sport or military environments where someone could go in and they could get testing. They could kind of walk on a censored treadmill right. and they can do motion capture. They put markers on their body, but our goal has always been the democratization of gate analytics because these barriers have been very real. And someone like me or you haven't been able to go and access that. And we as a company, we work with some of the best athletes in the world. That's actually kind of where we started. So, you know, we're doing this work with NBA players and NFL players and Major League Baseball players. And the thing is, is we've kind of built our bones there over the last couple of years. And really the goal has been, how can we take this really – kind of high level of analytics and monitoring and assessments and programming and basically this like personalized health platform. How can we bring that to the individual? And that's been a lot of what this last year has been done. So coming back to that, there have been substantial barriers for regular people to go and get this testing. Even most physical therapy clinics and chiropractors, they don't use any tools or sensors to get objective data. You know, the standard of care is eye tests, which again, That's kind of insane, actually, when you think about
2: it. Yeah. All right. So, look, you've piqued my interest. So, like, imagine I'm, I know your spokesperson is Andre Degrasse. Imagine I'm Andre. Uh, You know, what sort of tools are available to those athletes to keep them healthy and in the game?
3: So. You know, right now, like let's take Andre as a perfect example. So he was our first brand ambassador and is, you know, a very close friend of um, the companies. and And we collect on him leading up to the Olympics, and we were actually just doing some data collection with him a couple of days ago. So you know, he has access to the tools that we provide, but again, he has to go into a lab or the University of Florida where he trains and things like that. So it's not really mobile. He can't take it with him around the world as he's traveling. So. You know, again, what we do is we come in with this very easy to use system. You have these sensors, you put them in your shoes, and we basically get all of that lab-grade data that you would get from a lab, but anywhere. So, you know, Andre uses us often to basically check in to see if anything is wrong, kind of like, again, like a check engine. Like, you do some diagnostics, he takes us on runs, we do jump testing to look at, you know, the foot-ankle complex, and again the goal is longevity and staying in the game for as long as possible. So a lot of what we do is around the kind of injury prevention. And then once someone's healthy, we can kind of work on optimizing. So yeah, again, like Andre is a great example of what we would do with any of our members. He just happens to be an Olympic gold medalist.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
3: I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure and you know, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk a little bit more about uh, Plantiga and some of the work that we do.
2: We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss social media and your health on The Tonic. Is joint pain keeping you from enjoying your favorite activities? New Roots Herbal can help. Whether it's reducing acute pain and chronic inflammation or rebuilding worn down cartilage, discover joint pain relief inflaheal plus and chondroitin glucosamine from new roots herbal only the highest quality natural ingredients tested for purity and potency in an iso accredited lab available exclusively at your local health food store to ensure these products are right for you always read and follow the label the tonic is brought to you by purely natural their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble grit-free and great tasting greens on the market
0: You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio.
2: Success enabler, idea broker, and award-winning marketer at the PR department, Brigitte Foisy has been the strategist behind some of Canada and the world's biggest brands for over 30 years. Also vice president at Chefs Canada, the organization that manages our national culinary teams. What she enjoys most is connecting people and being the bridge to successful, mutually beneficial partnerships. Welcome back to the show. How are you?
0: I'm good. How
2: are you? I'm doing well. So I'm going to throw a stat at you, okay? Okay. Which actually you threw at me and I'm throwing back at you, okay?
0: (laughs) Sounds good.
2: Okay. So in 2018, the University of Pennsylvania found in a study that reducing social media use up to 30 minutes a day resulted in a significant reduction in levels of anxiety, depression, loneliness, and sleep problems. So that's no great surprise given the news that we're hearing Regarding Facebook, etc., right now, does it come as a shock to you?
0: Uh, no, it was an obvious thing to happen, like, you know, in a time where privacy and obvious next step. And the shutdown a couple of weeks ago was just, in my opinion, a great way to clean the books.
2: <laughs> yeah. OK, so are we actually on the same side of this? This is interesting. OK, because you're in PR. <laughs> so, like, I thought we could talk about the pros and cons of social media you know, in the context of connection, right? Because our segments have been about connection, but I I think there's a bigger picture here too, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, we talked a lot about how to volunteer and things to consider before donating. But today, yeah, I thought we talked about the impact on community on health and wellness and because that's what tonic is all about. But you know, I've said it before and I'll say it again, I do believe strongly that we were created for community and, and to thrive in life, we need companionship. And in my opinion, our connection to others has a big impact on our mental health and happiness. We obviously have tons of stat on that. In fact, it's well known that being socially connected can ease stress and anxiety and depression and boost self-worth and provide joy and even add years to our life. And the Funny thing about social media—it's what, even in the name, it's like it's supposed to connect us, but it's dividing us. So it's got it's got great pros and cons, but I think it needs to be taken with a grain of salt, even from us marketers.
2: You know, I have my own opinions on why social media isn't perhaps the greatest thing since sliced bread. I'm just going to put this out there—you you don't have to agree with me. If you do, that's great. And for the listeners, you can disagree with me too. What I don't like. There's a couple of things. Foremost is it blurs the line between fact and opinion. And I think what's lost is from a traditional media sense, there is a line drawn between what is an article based in fact and what is an opinion piece. But there's no such distinction made on social media, which means that if you're not paying attention, and I would say that the vast majority of people do not pay attention. You have a situation where people are taking somebody's musings as fact and elevating opinion to the same level as fact. So that when we're having disagreements and arguments over germane and important things, people sometimes get lost in what is real and what is somebody's perspective. And without somebody sort of saying, hey, this is an opinion, it isn't fact, I think that's where the lines get blurred And that's problem number one. And I would say problem number two is, you know, it's two sides of the same coin. It's really easy to find your quote unquote tribe online. If you have a particular interest or a political leaning or a social leaning, you can find just about anybody who will agree with you. But the problem with that is unless you're actively trying to find people who disagree with you, it becomes an echo chamber where all you hear is your own thoughts sort of echoing off other people's opinions, which just multiplies. And I think that's why it's so divisive. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I mean, on social media, everybody has a voice, right? And, and all of a sudden, it's not about credentials. Like to become a yeah. journalist at the Toronto Star, the Toronto Sun, whatever, at, at Zoom, or, you know, you need to have some credentials. Online, you have no credentials. Like all of a sudden, everybody is an expert. (laughs) So I think there's dangers to that. I think there's great positive things to that as well i think people need to put their judgment hat on when they go on social media right there's obvious positive like we've talked about like it's enabling us to you know stay connected to our family and friends around the world like facebook does that really well and whatsapp does that snapchat and messenger are a few platforms that help us do that. It helps you find new friends and communities like uh, network with other people with similar interests, like you mentioned, and ambition. Like there's Facebook groups for that. There's Instagram where you can search by keyword and and even TikTok. And in in recent times you can follow, you know, food TikTok for what, you know, if you're you're interested in that. Those connect us to interest and that's fantastic. Their, Their social media can help you find vital connection if you live in a remote remote area or have limited independence or social anxiety or be part of an, if you're part of a marginalized group, I think it can definitely give you that interaction with other humans that you might be missing on. It can be an outlet for creativity and self-expression. And I'm thinking about, again, TikTok, Instagram, Dribble, uh, Tumblr, SoundCloud, if you're a musician, it can discover information and learning in LinkedIn, Twitter, Clubhouse. So those are great positive things, but then there's great negative things. Again, inadequacy about your life and your appearance. I hear a lot of youth. I mean, I have a, a, a young son in his 20s and I heard someone say one, don't compare your behind the scene to someone else's highlight reel. And I love that, but young people don't always think that way. So even if we know that the images we're looking at on social media are manipulated, they can still make us feel insecure about how we look or dissatisfied with what's going on in our life. It's kind of that FOMO, that fear of missing out, the feeling that others are having way more fun or living a way better life than we are. The idea that one's missing out on certain things can impact self-esteem and trigger anxiety and feel even greater dissatisfaction about your life and then there's isolation which there's a study that found that i usage of facebook snapchat and instagram decreases feeling of loneliness Conversely, to, the study found also that reducing social media usage can actually make you feel less lonely and isolated and improve your overall well-being. If you're spending an excessive amount of time on social media and experience any of these feelings, it might be time to re-examine your online habit and find like a, an healthier balance. Like that study that you found from Penn, uh, U, which was 30 minutes, right? 30 minutes a day.
2: Yeah, I think everything in moderation is fine. I think the problem with social media is, and I see it with my own kids, is, you know, they will acknowledge they can go down a black hole where, you know, they only intended to check Instagram or TikTok for five minutes and an hour later, they're still doing it, you know, to the point where, you know, they've said during exam time or when they're particularly busy, they actually disengage from social media in in order to make sure they get their work done. So, you know, like anything, I, I suppose if you have an addictive personality, you know, There's certainly a lot of fodder there if you want to waste time. Let's spend the balance of the interview talking about ways to engage with community more specifically on social media.
0: Well, I mentioned a whole bunch a little earlier, and we're home 24-7 now. (laughs) Most of us are anyway, and, and that changed the way, you know... I feel we've changed our work connections for online exchanges, right? Personally, I'm on Zoom and team calls, like, all day long. Our friends and family time has also gone on social. And all of that, I think it contributes to driving us apart from human connection and those stats that we've talked about. I mean, it all adds up. All of that adds up, right? So Mm -hmm. I think we need to, for me, I think it's about using social media perhaps to generate social connections somehow, like using, you know, let's say, Facebook to connect with your community and, you know, lead to interacting more. And I don't know if it starts online or if it starts by us hanging out more on our front lawns and (laughs) and saying hello. And then all of a sudden, like, one thing leads to another and you're maybe part of a small, you know, group of your community and you start, I don't know, a neighborhood watch or a tool exchange of some kind or, you know what I mean? Like I, do. I, I don't know where it starts, if it starts online and you connect with others from your neighborhood or it starts face to face and you bring it online and, and being able to help one another. But I feel social has that power to unite us if we use it wisely and if it, if it does lead to human connections, in my opinion.
2: I think joining groups that are geographic or of interest, you know, like community groups in the neighborhood might allow you to connect with somebody that, you know, you might not have seen a couple of blocks over which, you know, in a city the size of Toronto, that, you know, that's a meaningless distance. But if, you know, if you're not able, you know, if you're able to walk a few blocks, you know, maybe you've got a new friend, I don't know. or, Or, you know, maybe it's a a community of people that have the same interests, which allows yeah. you to reach out and sort of share ideas.
0: And I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think yeah. it, it just happens, right? Yeah. It, I think it's got to be intentional. And at least at the beginning, it's got to be intentional. Yeah. And perhaps it is as easy as saying hi to your neighbor. And even if you've been living beside them for like five years to say, you know what, I meant to come and say hello and introduce myself, right? I think that's. Step is genuinely the building block of perhaps organizing community within your own little neighborhood. I know friends that organizes block parties and garage sale and, but yeah, we can bring that online afterwards and create like formalized tool sharing program or backyard movie nights and you promote it through your, your community Facebook group. Like together, I think, you know, like again, we talked about neighborhood watch, build a community garden uh, or help the less fortunate. I've seen a lot of people throughout the pandemic, like doing uh, fridges or pantries within their neighborhood or, or even this little free library that we see on everybody's uh a front run to encourage people to, to read more. I mean, I think we can use social media in ways to encourage and lead to those face-to-face interaction. You know, I love personally organizing Zoom or team meetings with my family that's in Quebec and with my friends uh, around the world. It makes sense to use technology for actual exchanges that way. And perhaps, yeah, I think it either starts buying it out on our front yard or it starts by one person joining an online community group maybe and start there. So I love organizing Zoom and team video chats with my family in Quebec and my friends all over the world. So I think it makes sense to use technology for actual exchanges, but I think it needs to lead to that face-to-face physical interaction between one another.
2: Agreed. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
0: My pleasure, as always.
2: We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss chiropody, podiatry, and orthotics on The Tonic. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. HealthCasa is a mobile healthcare service that brings the clinic to you. Imagine convenient appointments in the safety and comfort of your own home for massage, massage, Physiotherapy, chiropody, orthotics, ergonomic assessments, and occupational therapy. Their services are covered by most insurance plans, and their team of highly trained and vetted healthcare practitioners bring everything they need. So all you have to do is answer the door. No more wasting time in traffic or gross waiting rooms. HealthCasa brings the clinic to you. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit healthcasa.com. This is The
0: Tonic on Zoomer Radio.
2: Having started a small chain of foot clinics and an orthotic manufacturer in the GTA in 2010, and then selling them in 2014, Mike Gaspar became acutely aware of the key to rapid growth, and that is providing an extraordinary patient experience. In 2017, along with his partner Karen, he founded HealthCasa with the goal of providing safe and convenient access to high-quality health care to patients in their homes by going back to the roots of how we used to get our health care, the house call. Mike's aspirations for HealthCASA are twofold. To provide a great patient experience and to provide a great practitioner experience while making the process as easy as possible for everyone involved. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? I'm great. Great to be back. So, last time you were on the show, you triumphantly... Advise that we're going to be talking about all things foot care today, right? Yummy, of course. So, I'm I'm holding you to it. Okay, so let's start with a word that many people mispronounce. I'm going to go with the Canadian version, and that is chiropodist. Did I get it right? Right.
4: That's So, in Canada, it's chiropodist or chiropody. In Britain, it's chiropody or chiropodist. No one's really going to care what you say. They okay. might correct Nobody you. Nobody cares
2: what I say in any event, but go,
4: but go on. <laughs> no comment. So... Yeah, I mean, the difference really is because in Canada, we took the British foot care model and transplanted it in Canada because, you know, part of the British Empire, what have you. You know, we have that in Ontario. Now, it is different from province to province. There are some chiroprity provinces, some podiatry provinces, uh, and some have both. Just,
2: you know, like Ontario, to confuse, Ontario, them, to confuse Ontario, everyone. Right, Ontario does have both. That yeah. I do know, right? Yeah. So, is there a difference between the two for practical purposes?
4: Between chiroprity and podiatry? Correct. They're both foot specialists. They're both, you know, regulated, registered healthcare professionals. Both are probably covered by uh, most insurance plans. The difference comes to bony surgery. So, a podiatrist can do bony surgery, whereas a chiropodist or chiropodist can't. (laughs) Okay. And, you know, the difference is, you know, really when it comes to OHIP coverage, and and I may not be 100% on point, so if someone wants to correct me, please. Um, I'm all ears. If someone needed to have bony surgery, uh, you'd probably end up going to an orthopedic surgeon, which would be 100% right. covered by OHIP, and the procedure would be covered uh, or, sorry performed in a hospital as opposed to a clinic. So the difference is kind of moot between a podiatrist and a chiropractor in that sense. For the most part, they can do the same thing. Again, there are intricacies, but... You know, okay, so really I'm going to throw it. another one at you.
2: Sure. That's not the same as a chiropractor, though,
4: correct? No. Chiropractor is again rudimentarily speaking a spine specialist whereas a chiropodist is a foot specialist specializing in everything focusing on everything from the ankle down okay so, why would somebody go see a chiropodist? All the gross stuff that you don't want to hear that I'm going to tell you about yeah, right no, now. Yeah, no, let's go for so, it. So, I mean, you know, you have like biomechanical. So, I'll use the word biomechanical a lot mm-hmm. in describing stuff. So, that's basically how your body parts move. No dirty jokes. So, <laughs> so uh, We're a family show here, sir. <laughs> okay. You know, corns, calluses, warts, fungus, ingrown toenails, diabetic foot care is a very important one. I don't know if yeah. you're aware, but, but there's a big correlation between diabetes and foot problems... Because one of the uh, uh, side effects of diabetes is called diabetic neuropathy, where you lose feeling in your extremities, So your fingers and your toes and your, your, or your hands and your feet. And, you know, that's an important thing because you and I step on a pebble or maybe a piece of Lego in your house. And, you know, we, we, know. we, say, <laughs> a few, we say a few things yeah, and, then, exactly. and then we go on and it's fine and we still feel it. But if someone doesn't have as much feeling as they once did in their feet and they do that, that could quickly escalate into
2: something much more serious. Right. Because if, you, if you're not feeling it, there could be, There's a wound, your balance wound, could be thrown off, the, your, your footfall could be completely different and putting stress on the wrong bones and muscles, et cetera, right? Not so much that, but, you know, a little cut that would
4: heal with you, you know, a, a, you know, a healthy individual, but someone with diabetes, they won't have the same blood flow and it might not heal ah. as fast, might get infected, could spread, and you're not feeling this. So, right. you know, we, we tell diabetic patients to, or I believe patients with diabetes, the way we're supposed to say it, mm-hmm. um, to check their feet daily with a plastic mirror, check their socks for any blood or anything.
2: Hmm. Okay. So why, generally, for those of us who aren't diabetic, why is the health of our feet so important? I mean...
4: The feet are the window to your soul. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've read that somewhere. No, I actually that have that is not. that is not. Uh, that, I mean, I don't know if that's true or not. I'm not going to I'm not going to quote they, you on that. They are the foundation of your whole body. If your feet are out of alignment, you're not walking properly, running properly, standing properly. It's causing you know one side of your body to be or just everything to be out of alignment in what we call the whole kinetic chain. So from your your feet and ankles right up to your neck. You know, one thing's out of alignment at the bottom. Think about your house. If one side of the foundation was sinking, how straight would your roof be?
2: Good right. point. I mean, like I've experienced that uh, where I had issues with my ankle when I was mm-hmm. running. I used to be a, a regular runner. I can't run anymore. But it would affect eventually my knees and my hips, right? Because if, right. if your gait is different, mm-hmm. your footfall is different, the way you pace is different, and you're putting stress on muscles in a way that isn't natural. So you, you have to get it attended to, right?
4: Right. And again, it almost sounds silly to say that, but if you had a wart or a corn that was you know, hurting your foot... You're going to put more less pressure on that foot and you, you compensate or overcompensate with right. the other foot. Right. And again, that will, uh, you know, change your gait. It will change the whole balance of your kinetic chain.
2: Okay. So, part of what chiropodists and podiatrists do is that they'll help with orthotics and, mm-hmm. and and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, let's talk a bit about that because… You know, I can go to my drugstore and I see insoles there. Why would I bother with a chiropodist if I can just go
4: to the drugstore and buy one? So great question. It's one that we see relatively often or hear relatively often. You know, I'll answer that with a question. I'm 250 pounds. I'm actually not. Uh, And you're 150 pounds. I am absolutely Um, not. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, so 250 versus 150, we have the same size feet. I run 25 kilometers a week. You run five kilometers a week. Right. But we have the same size feet. Right. How do you go buy one of those things? You look for the shoe size and you buy it.
2: Right. It does.
4: But that based speak. on what the information I just gave you, do we need to be in the same type of orthotic?
2: No, we don't. Because you're you're bigger right. and you're putting more stress on your feet because you're running more. Right.
4: Right. And then you know, there's so much more that goes into that. I mean, like your foot shape. There's, I think, 26 bones in your feet alone. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how many there are in in the whole body, but that's a large portion of them in your feet okay Mm -hmm. and if any one of those is you know sagging or whatever just not in the proper position for whatever reason and there are millions of reasons why you know they need to be supported and you know if you look at those there's a reason they can sell them for 25 bucks and trust me they're making a profit on those they're not costing them more than a couple bucks to make okay how good are they going to be you know go buy a pair and see how thick the plastic is in there and think is that going to support my body Okay. Right. It might give you some cushioning, but that's about it. Okay, so what, what about the ones that I can buy online, right? That's a little bit different, isn't it? It's a little bit better, and there, there's some technology out there where you can use your phone camera to take pictures of your foot. Yeah. And, you know, they charge a higher price so they can afford to put a little higher quality material in there. So it's definitely a step up, but if you take a picture with your phone, mm-hmm. to my knowledge, there are no phones out there that have 3D cameras on them yet. No, Apple hasn't gotten to it yet, but... Exactly. It's coming. I'm sure it's coming. But in the meantime, it's not there. Yeah. So you're taking a two-dimensional picture and extrapolating the data for that third dimension to make a 3D, 3D device. Oh, so you're saying, for example, with your company, you have the ability to take uh, 3D imagery? or We don't use that technology. We take a plaster of Paris mold of ah. your foot, which is the tried, test, and true method. You're old school. It's, you know what? It works. And it works well. Okay? And ultimately... You know, it it takes more time. It's a little messy, but it works and it yields a better end result,
2: which is what we're doing this for. So the orthotics, so you're creating a mold, I guess, uh, and then from there, what, is it plastic or is it resin? There's,
4: you know, you can, it's called thermoplastics for the most part, which are heat and vacuum molded onto a positive mold that is made from that negative mold of your foot. Mm -hmm. And then it's, uh, you know, finished at the lab. Uh, that is all done at the lab. We just do the casting, send it to a third-party lab who we have vetted, and it's made according to the prescription and order form sent in by the chiropodist, who's done a full assessment of your feet.
2: So with your business, people, your, your practitioners will go to somebody's home. Are they able to do these foot casts uh, in the home? Yep did everything at your home, your office, backyard, cottage. We've done it all. Wow! And, and what's the turnaround like for that? So if I if I were to call you in and I needed, it's determined I needed orthotics, and you take the mold. Like what's what's the time? Let's frame? on
4: average two weeks. I like to say three weeks because I, I like to underpromise and overdeliver. Yeah. I will say, without fail, people always wait to the last minute. Oh, my insurance expires at the end of the year, so. You know, I gotta get this done, and they call on like December twenty fifth, and like you know, people take holidays. Yeah, a few of uh, us not, do. Not, not not really us, but but the lab. You know, right. they're not dealing with just us; they're dealing with probably hundreds of other clinics out there, and you know, we need to give them time to do that. So we say the turnaround time, you know, increases to maybe three weeks when uh, at the, towards the end of the year. So. Don't leave it at the last minute. But then
2: it's custom for the person. Always. Those sort of orthotics. So if you're active, would you need two different sets? Would you need one for sports and one for every day? Or could so you use the same one? Or I would say for our male patients...
4: It's pretty easy, you know. You look at all your shoes. You've got your dress shoes, your right. casual shoes, your running shoes. You can wear one pair of orthotics in all of those, and it doesn't really change too much, you know, unless there were some, you know, crazy dress shoes that were very, say, tapered and shallow. But for sports specific footwear like ski boots or, uh, you know, skates or inline yeah. skates and things like that, golf shoes or. Are- basically like running shoes with stuff on the outside doesn't really affect the fit you might have to change it a little bit female clients are obviously a little bit different you know we can make things for some heels not crazy high heels you know every co or podiatrist will tell you those they're not so good for your feet that's said, we don't want you to give up your lifestyle you know if you're going to wear them once in a while let's make you an orthotic that fits that uh shoe and as many of your shoes as possible as often as
2: possible Cool. Does that make sense? Yeah. We have time for one last quick cool. question. And that is, I think you mentioned it, are custom orthotics covered by insurance? So every insurance plan is different. So i right.
4: qualify my answer with that. And I will say, you know, before you go buy something, check, estimate, with the yeah. check with your insurance provider and make sure that you have the coverage. That said, as long as they're prescribed and, you know, it's a proper prescription, it's got all the, you've got all the proper clinical documentation to back it up. It's made You know, by an accredited lab and it's done with the right materials. There's a lot that goes into it. So in general, yes, but you got to do your homework and you got to ask the right questions. And if you're not comfortable with the answers that you're getting, you know, caveat emptor, buyer beware. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure.
2: Great to be back. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca.
0: This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio.
2: Tracy Sograti has an eclectic background in molecular biology, psychology, and nursing. She practices psychotherapy and yoga therapy and has over 20 years of experience in leading classes, workshops, and events. She believes that the tools of mindfulness pave the way for a deeply meaningful life at any stage, and you can find her at Sograti Yoga SograttiYoga on Facebook, or Tracy Sograti on Instagram. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you?
1: I'm awesome. How are you, Jamie?
2: Good. I'm telling myself good stories
1: today. I'm so excited to talk to you about this.
2: Yeah, I know. I figured you would be. So yeah. let's talk about self narrative, okay? Yeah. What's narrative therapy for somebody who doesn't know?
1: Okay. So, narrative therapy is based on the idea that we construct reality based on the stories that we tell ourselves, okay? Mm-hmm. And. Listen. If you tell yourself a story that's you know self actualized and really reflects you know your ability to be resilient or um, be impactful in the world, that's great.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: However, the problem is is that most people don't do that. What's more typical is that we sort of internalize or latch on to these problem saturated stories and they tend to be pretty rigid, you know, stories about our abilities or inabilities really. Right? Mm-hmm. We see ourselves as sort of less capable and the world as more stressful. And then we internalize that story and we repeatedly tell ourselves that story over and over, which means we can't get out of whatever trap we found ourselves in. Do
2: you know what I find interesting about this? It is yeah. the concept of subjectivism. Right, like we hear about the Randian objectivism, right? Yeah. But this negates that. It just says no. We we all have our stories that that become our realities.
1: Yeah.
2: And from that, hopefully, you're going to tell us how to get out of the bad loops. Yeah. But it's an acknowledgement that really we live our lives as we perceive them,
1: and a lot of it is in our heads. Exactly, and you know what? Like I just. I love your brain. Like, I love that that's where you went with it because that's actually exactly what it is. Like, like there was a time in therapy where you would go to someone and they would say, okay, from out here, I've got this objective idea of what's wrong with you and it's this. And then they would tell you what's best for you. And and what research and science has actually shown us is that that's just fundamentally not really true. And you're right. Like, it is how we perceive things, and it is in our heads. And when we're able to shift that narrative, when we're able to uh, shift that perception, then it can really change our whole experience. But it also shifts our behavior. Right? And that's the reality piece. That's how we make a new reality and a new template. All
2: right. So let's give the listeners a tangible example of a narrative that yeah. may or may not be so helpful. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to go through a couple ones, like maybe a really common one right now for people is just narratives around COVID, right? Yeah. So we've been sort of globally living through this pandemic for a really extended period of time. And so for some people, the dominant narrative is that the world is a dangerous place. And so that story is going to be a really rigid sort of problem-saturated story, and it's going to show up in the way that they interact with other people. It's going to show up with the way that they interacted in stores or out in the world. Because, you, you know, I, I am seeing, I don't know if you're seeing this as well, but just a lot more conflict out yeah. in society and a lot more polarization. So. F- you know, that might be the dominant narrative. And another dominant narrative for other people might be that the government is dangerous or that the vaccine itself is dangerous. And so that narrative, that story, which that person has accepted as reality is going to then shift the way that they interact with their family members and with the rest of the world. And so you can see how those two very different narratives predict behavior and then create the reality that we're living in right now.
2: Okay. So if that's true, and I believe that it is, how do we fix that? How do we challenge those? I will call them false narratives, but perhaps not so helpful narratives.
1: Yeah. So sometimes I just call them like personal narratives, right? Okay. Fair enough. Yep. Yeah. And, and, you know, okay. So, so technically the way that you fix it is, is there's two terms called internal externalization and deconstruction, which I'm going to go over in a second.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I guess the first thing I want to say, Jamie, is that For all of us to come together, because I think underneath your question was maybe this piece. For all of of us to come together, we we sort of have to accept that At any given time, there are many narratives happening, and we've given dominance to one of them, but that that doesn't make it true, right? So there might be, it's like this acceptance of both and, and two things can be true at the same time, that kind of thing, right? Yep. So there's that sort of fundamental acceptance. But to challenge our narratives, you have to start by noticing a problem that you're having in your life, right? Which I think, on many levels, we're all pretty good at that. Yep. Yep. And so as soon as you notice the problem, you can ask yourself, okay, well, what's the story I'm telling myself about the problem? And, you know, you can think about, like, a family dinner where you're having a reaction to someone. Okay? Mm-hmm. And you think about, you know, you think about, like, if you notice you're having a strong reaction to that person, you can start to ask yourself, well, what's the story I'm telling about the problem? And usually it's very problem saturated and it's a very rigid, narrow view of really what the problem is. So once you tell yourself the story and you, you could even write it out, you go through this process of actually objectifying the problem. So what I mean by that yeah, I was is ask. that... <laughs> Like when we have a problem, whether it's within our families or within our marriages or within our friendships, the typical thing we do is we point fingers, mm-hmm. right? And then the person who's getting the finger pointed at gets really defensive, right? So mm-hmm. I'm not far off here, right? Mm-hmm. And so instead of doing that when you notice that you're having a problem is objectifying is you're going to give the problem a name. So for example, say, you know, we just outlined like what's happening with COVID, right? Mm-hmm. And so instead, we might call the problem here the fear of COVID, right, or the fear of vaccines. And then once you do that, you kind of ask yourself, well, okay, well, how is the fear of COVID making me behave? Like, how is it telling me to behave? And then you can start to see your behavior from a distance, right, which gives you a little bit of choice. It's like, oh, well, if the fear of COVID is making me behave this way. I like it's not me. There's nothing wrong with me. And there there starts to be a little bit of agency there, right? Or how is the fear of government making me behave? Right? And so from here you can start to to shift things and actually look for exceptions, right? So you figure out your problem, mm-hmm. you give it a name. It might even be anxiety. How is anxiety making me behave? How is fear making me behave? What's fear telling me to do? You know, how is fear impacting the way that I talk to my wife?
2: So it's not your fear, it's fear. It's not it's your anxiety, fear. it's anxiety.
1: Yeah, you want to really objectify it. You could even call it the fear, right. the anxiety, because it just, it takes it outside of you. And this is actually like what the research shows is doing this is the key thing. And even, even if I was looking at, say, couples, right, that's mm-hmm. the number one thing I would want to do because usually... If you've got a couple in a room, they're going to be pointing their fingers at each other, right? But if you take the problem and instead of the problem being either person and you call it something else and put it over here, you know, like away from your body, it's like, oh, well, wait a second. Now I can locate myself outside of the problem. okay? And so you can then start to look for these exceptionalities and, and ask yourself, okay, well, what happens when that problem isn't in control and when you notice exceptionalities all of a sudden there's choice Right. Because when we have a self-defeating narrative that we've bought into, I'm not good enough. I'm too old. You know, I can't do something. Right. Um, you know, I could go on and on. What is really built in there? Like when I say rigid, I'm really talking about people feeling like they don't have a choice.
2: Right. Or, or maybe it's been demonstrated throughout their life. Like in other words, like it's not not grounded in reality. It's just a, a question, I suppose, of taking the emotional component out of how they feel about what's happened, right? Like, I can't change. Well, is it yes. true you can't change? Well, I'm not good at it. I've, You know, I've been doing things for 30, 40 years the same way. Ergo, yes. I can't change, right?
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, and you know what? I'm going to add something else into what you just said because it's sure. also a really important point. Is, you know, sometimes if you have a belief or a perception, Right. Then you do a behavior that's in in alignment with that belief. So I can't change, which means I don't try anything new. Right. Which reinforces the belief. Okay. Right? So So it becomes a self perpetuating pattern.
2: All right. So help us again get out of that loop. Okay. Like, how do we change those stories of our lives?
1: Yeah. So literally, you want to think of reauthoring your own story. okay? Okay. So you notice that you have a problem, get out a pen and a piece of paper write down the story you're telling yourself about the problem Mm -hmm. okay give the problem a name so externalize it and ask yourself how does this problem make me act okay Mm -hmm. and then how do i behave when the problem isn't in control how do i behave when the jealousy isn't in control how do i behave when the fear isn't in control for example Right, mm-hmm. And then once you have those exceptionalities and you realize, oh, there's choice here, start to rewrite the story around the problem and around what options you have so that you can start to see a richer and more complex picture of who you are, right? So that you can change your perception of the control the problem has on you. And as you begin to reauthor that story, it will literally change your behavior. And it's as simple as that, but, you know, not easy, but it's as simple as that.
2: Easy to say, perhaps not so easy to do. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: Okay. Well, thank you for coming on the show today. What do you want to discuss next month?
1: I want to follow this up with what it means to really consciously transform, to change yourself.
2: All right. So then we get to the nitty gritty. That sounds good. Okay. (laughs) Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Quinn Sandler, Brigitte Foisy, Mike Gasper, and Tracy Sograti. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at the Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. The September-October issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show you can always email me at jamie@tonictrono.com at next week on the show we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you until then this is jamie busson wishing you a healthy and happy week
0: this podcast is proudly produced and presented by the zoomer podcast network home of great podcasts like marilyn lightstone reads idea city on the air and the garden show